tonight just bring me down just a little bit there's a little bit of ringing but we're on part three uh, this won't be terribly long i want to talk about a few things that i probably have covered in the past but some things that i probably have never covered but those of you that remember the story of genesis 15 16 17 god appeared to abram and told him that he was going to give him a son and and abram was saying well how do i know that this will happen and God told him to take these different animals and cut them in half and separate the pieces. Of course, the birds he didn't cut in half. He put them on each side. So they would have been four different pieces on each side. And Abram was walking among that bloody soil. <clears throat> and God appeared powerfully to him. And this was where God cut covenant with Abram. And he obviously through this whole thing, he changed his name to Abraham. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. But when Abram was walking in that bloody soil, listen to what I'm saying, because those in River of Life and some that are listening will know what I'm talking about, but there'll be some that probably don't. See, where you find the blood being reverenced like that, this was a picture and type of the blood of Jesus. Okay, but where the blood was there, the blood of covenant, the blood was reverenced. Anytime you find the blood reverenced, you find the glory of God coming down really strong. And we know that the glory, the one descriptive term of the glory is the kavod, K-A-V-O-D, kavod. And the kavod, it comes down, to, there's a weightiness to it. In fact, some people find in the Bible, you see, and even it, it happens in altar ministry, you find some people just kind of melting in the glory. And even going into like a, a deep sleep if you will or maybe having a vision or something like that and that is what happened to abram he was under he, there was such a glory come there that he went into like a deep sleep then it said that god appeared in a smoking pot and a torch you know that was that was the other manifestation of the glory the shekinah and it manifested to israel later his descendants in the in a cloud by day the smoking pot right and a fire by night, the torch. And so God cut covenant with Abram and basically said, I'm going to put my glory in your midst and among your descendants. Isn't that awesome? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it talked about if the law came with glory. Well, the law did come with glory. I mean, Moses' face shone with the glory. The glory came down on Sinai. The glory was, was with them through the wilderness. Okay, so the law did come with glory. But he said, how much more so will the, the glory be with, um, with us that are of Christ that have the spirit, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. We're on the other side of the cross. So he's saying if before the cross, if the law came with glory, how much more so now in Christ will there be the glory? So understand that when we understand blood covenant and by faith, Galatians 3.13 says that we have been redeemed from the curses earned the law by Christ becoming a curse for us, redeeming us from all the curses of the law so that the blessings given to Abraham are on us. And by faith, I've already read this last week, we move into the fact that we are sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. And so by faith, 
we, we have walked with Abraham through the bloody soil. And God has cut covenant with us, with Abraham. Okay, we are his offspring, if you will. Born of the Spirit, circumcised of the heart. And so we share in that glory in our lives and in our ministry. How many sense the glory in this place tonight? And I found that where the blood of Jesus is reverenced, the bread of presence and the blood, that's why we take the Lord's Supper when we come together, that God comes down because we're reverencing the blood, his glory comes. Just like, for example, I've said this a lot, but you remember on the Day of Atonement, the priest went in once a year, he was just wearing the white, and he put that um, incense in there, and he would come in with the, with the blood in a bowl. And it was this golden bowl he was holding in his hand, and he would bring in the blood and the goat that was shed for the nation, and that blood he would take his forefinger and he would dip it in the blood and sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat. So blood was all over the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat area in the front on the ground. And they set the bowl down and he would go up by the Ark. And the Bible says that the glory of God came in there. So can you imagine that that priest, there was no light in there except the glory. That's what's neat about the Holy of Holies. See, the outer court's lit by the sun. The inner court by the menorah. But the Holy of Holies didn't have anything in there to light it. And so, and it was covered really well, by the way, thick skins, four layers. There wasn't light in there. So for him to approach that ark, there was some kind of a shining, some kind of a Shekinah that was glowing there. And he would approach that, I'm sure in great fear and trembling. And he would pray and ask forgiveness for the sins. But here's what I want you to think about. Where that blood was applied, the glory came on the blood. Remember David, he tried to bring the ark in, but like the Philistines did. That was a dumb thing to do. But he figured, hey, it worked for the Philistines. And so he brings the ark in on a, on a cart, and, and Uzzah dies because of that. And so he figures out, I need to go and ask the priest, now how am I supposed to do this? And the priest's like, well, we're supposed to carry the ark. And so David, listen to what he did. Ralph preached on this. Every six steps, he shed blood. You know how the ark came into Jerusalem? It rode on top of a trail of blood. Wherever the blood of Jesus is reverenced, the blood of Jesus is applied to us, it's applied corporately, fresh, and it's reverenced. That's where the glory will come. Okay? So God is faithful to his end of the blood covenant. We're the ones, if there's anybody that has not been faithful to the blood covenant, it's not God. How many knows that's the truth? And a lot of times the church world, I hear people preach and they start reading the old covenant and they start kind of speaking disparaging, uh, disparagingly uh, to the, about the children of Israel in the wilderness and different kings that backslid and all the things that's happened. Well, yeah, Israel blew it. They, they failed God a lot. Has the church been any better? We don't have any room to criticize the nation of Israel. So the church has also been back, a history of backsliding. Why do you think that we need historic revivals? Because God's got to fix all the problems man has created. And he always has to work outside of every man-made structure to do it. And it's usually persecuted by all the religious the entire time he's fixing our problems. 
So part three is us returning to God. Now Leviticus 26 verse 40 is really interesting here because it says this. How many knows that we have, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory? None of us are perfect. But it says if we confess our sin, if we confess our iniquity actually here, and I'm going to explain iniquity a little bit. If we confess our iniquity and the iniquity of our forefathers. Now that's interesting because there is generational issues to pray about. He says, if in their unfaithfulness, so if, if he's saying, look, if my people will confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness, which they have committed against me, and consequently now, I also in acting in hostility against them. So he's saying when they betray me and they are uh, not living for me like they should, I'm going to resist them. How many knows Hebrews was at chapter 12, God disciplines those he loves. How many appreciate the fact that when we get off course, God's going to, he's going to discipline us. You know, Steve Hill got him a switch one time at the Brownsville Revival and he was, you know, like this, and he's talking about Jesus spanking us, and, and nobody wants to get spanked by the Lord. How many had a grandma whip you with a, with a switch? Amen. But the Lord, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so when we get unfaithful, now God says, I will begin to act in hostility toward them. And then he says, but if they will confess their iniquity... Verse 41, I also was acting in hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised hearts is humbled before me, and they'll make amends for their wrongdoing. Listen to verse 42. Here's the God of blood covenant, the God who's faithful to his end of the blood covenant. He says, I never was unfaithful. They've been unfaithful. But he says, if they will repent of their iniquity, and they'll return to me. He says, then I will remember my covenant. He says it backward. With Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. Now, isn't it interesting he says it backward? You know what that is? It's kind of like God pulling you back into that covenant. So in other words, we, by faith, we walk through the bloody soil with Abraham. But how many knows that, that people backslide, they get away from God, they get into sin, they, you know, and they're unfaithful. And therefore, God begins to act in hostility. He loves them, and he starts disciplining them. The worst thing that God could ever do to somebody would be to leave them alone in that state. That would be the worst thing. If the Holy Spirit ever departs, you're in big trouble. So if you ever start getting wayward, you better be thankful the Holy Spirit is convicting you and making your life miserable and working against you and trying to get you back in relationship with the Lord. You better be thankful for that. So God will pull them, pull us back into uh, right standing with him because he remembers the covenant and he's faithful to his end of the covenant. And so I began to do a deep study. This is something I've, I've preached on a lot because it's very dear to my heart. But the five things, five is the number of grace. Remember, Jesus was pierced in five places. But there's five things that God's given us in the scriptures. He says, if you will humble yourself. Everybody say humility. That's the key. And I have found, there's a couple people, I need to choose my words carefully here, but there's a couple men of God 
that I really admire that, that are so humble. In fact, that's really what sticks out to me when I think of them is their great humility. And because, listen to what I'm saying because this is actually really important. Because of their great humility, they have a very strong prayer life. And because of their strong prayer life, they have discernment. They tend to see things other people don't see. Hello? Now, I'm, again, I'm being really careful and very vague on purpose, but I've also known some people in the ministry that got, as we say here in the South, a little too big for their britches. Then, as because of that, next thing you know, they're not really in deep prayer, and their ministries are neglecting prayer. And consequently, they lose that sharp discernment they used to have. So humility is a very key thing. But see, number one is humility. Number two is prayer. Number three is adding fasting. Number four is being a giver, and that's a big deal with God. And number five is deeply consecrating your life unto him, deep repentance. If we will do those five things, the Lord said, you know, how many knows that for us to understand what pleases the Lord. Learn what pleases him. You know, how do I learn his ways? Can't you hear the heart of Moses? You know, there's all these other gods of nations. Lord, don't, don't leave. I mean, help, help us to know your ways. Help us to know how to please you. And don't leave. Let your presence go with us. You know, I can just hear Moses kind of crying out to the Lord. We don't know but help us to learn your ways. You know, here he is looking at the things that please. And this is something that if you want to know how, how can I return to God, how can I really have powerful breakthroughs in prayer and really get significant answers and really be heard deeply, this is how you do it. Humble yourself to the dirt. Humble yourself all the way down. You know, Satan kept saying what? I will exalt my throne. I will be lifted up. I will. <laughs> Satan was getting more and more arrogant, right? With Jesus. Jesus being the son of God came all the way down, 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 humbled himself down to the dirt, to the, to the, cro- the humiliating death of the cross, which is the death of a criminal, nude, beaten, bloody, great humility. But Jesus' great humility caused him to be raised up to the right hand of the Father. What did he teach us? If you'll humble yourself, you'll be exalted. So humility, prayer, prayer is the key. Everybody say prayer is the key. We have not because we ask not. I always encourage people pray specific and pray big. Don't pray wimpy prayers that if God doesn't come through, you can still fix it. Pray big. Pray the type of prayers that only God can do. And when it happens, everybody's going to say, well, God did that, didn't he? Pray big. And fasting. These kind come out but by prayer and fasting. Sometimes they're stubborn, entrenched things that are frustrating that fasting is the only thing that's going to break that open. Fasting is powerful. However God leads you, morning to evening, you may go for several days. You may do a partial fast like Daniel, but fasting is very powerful. Giving. Think about this for a moment. Don't neglect 
your giving. Some, some people listen to these, you go to a different church. Your tithe belongs in your church. But I'm just saying that don't neglect your giving because when it was time for a major shift in history, that God had poured out his spirit in Jerusalem on the, at the upper room, and all the people that were getting saved were, were Jewish people. As a matter of fact, there were many Levites and priests that had gotten saved, by the way. That's in the scriptures. So God was moving really powerfully. Now it was time. God says, I'm about to make one of the biggest shifts you've ever seen. And he said, I'm going to take the gospel out of Jerusalem and fulfill the prophecy of Jesus Christ, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I'm about to send it to the nations and bring in multiplied millions of people, billions of people. I'm going to send it to the world. Who did he choose to be the first person to open the door? He sent Peter where? To Cornelius' house. An Italian man. And Cornelius, when the angel of the Lord appeared to him, how would you like to be just sitting there in prayer one day and you look up and there's this angel looking at you? It scare you half to death. And so Cornelius probably fell out of his seat. Doesn't say it, but I'm sure he did. And the angel says, Cornelius, listen to what he said. Your prayers, prayer is important. And your giving. He had been a giver. He said, your prayers and your giving has gone up before God as a memorial offering, and I have been sent from the presence of God to you. Tell me giving isn't a big deal. And the angel said, now send for Peter. He's at Simon the Tanner's house. Have him come. And basically, we know the story. When Peter got there, the Holy Spirit fell on all of him, his family, and all of his friends, everybody that came, the same is on the day of Pentecost. And the Jews that were with Peter, mouths drop open. They're thinking, here we are among Gentiles, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit the same as we did on the day of Pentecost. And Peter said, well, who can stop them from being baptized? I mean, God obviously has chosen these people to be his. It shifted everything. Peter goes back and tells the early church leadership in Acts uh, was it 10, 11, 12, up through 15, they, he was saying, look, God's pouring out his spirit among the Gentiles. And so God, of course, raises up Peter, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas. I'm not going to go in this big, long thing and sends them out. But the point is, when it was God's timing to make a major shift, he chose Cornelius. But what did the angel say? Your prayer life, your consistent, faithful prayer life, and your consistent, faithful giving God looked all over and picked you and sent me to you. And not only did God bless Cornelius, but God blessed his entire family, all of his friends and everybody that was there to not only get saved, but baptized in the Holy Ghost and with fire and they experienced revival. Isn't that awesome? And then, of course, deep repentance. So humility, prayer, fasting, giving, deep repentance. If you really need God to perform a miracle for you, you really need something. Humble yourself to the dirt. Prayer and fasting, make sure that you're a giver. God may put on your heart to give a special offering or something and really deeply repent in your life. Is there anybody I need to forgive? Is there any sin in my life? Is there any compromise? I need to repent and return to God. My life is not lined up with the word. And I need to get my life back on track with the Lord. 
And when you really repent and you get right with the Lord, here's, here's the pattern. He said, if they will confess their iniquity and they'll return to me, make amends, I will remember my blood covenant. God's faithful, isn't he? And so I'm just going to speak from my heart because this is something that is just, you know, deeply in me and I don't need notes. But we know 2 Chronicles 7, 14, the famous, if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Some of you need the landscape of your personal life healed. How many people have, have, have felt like that the devil came in at some point in your life and brought some destruction? You need the landscape of your life healed and restored. Some of you have family that has experienced attacks of the devil. You need healing there. And also, obviously, in our, in our city, in our region, etc. But we need the Lord. But that's the same pattern, humility, prayer, fasting, consecration. And then, and then you look at Isaiah 58. I'm, gonna read, I'm not going to read it, but Joel 1 through 2 and Isaiah 58. I'm just going to kind of give you this. But I encourage you to read Isaiah 58 and read Joel 1 through 2 this next week. But see, in Joel 1, Israel backslid and got away from God. So God sent the enemy in to attack. You've read about this in the book of Judges. You remember? I mean, the book of Judges can be almost annoying at times. because It's like you read it, they backslide, they get weird. God sends a deliver. God first sends the enemy to come in and ravish them. Then they cry out to God, forgive us, Lord. We return to you. And God raises up a judge, brings deliverance. And it's not long until they go right back into sin. And this vicious cycle just keeps continuing. And so in the book of Joel, God's, you know, Joel was saying, look, you guys have gotten into sin. You're backslid. You're not right. And God has sent in his armies, his, uh, the armies of the enemy to come in now and bring destruction. And it was bad. It was so bad, these armies coming into Israel, they were, they were either stealing or destroying their crops, their fruit of the trees, their animals, everything. Israel was living in abstract poverty, and it was a very desperate situation, life-threatening. And it was because there was a breach. See, when you get into sin... The, the hedge of protection around your life begins to crack down and there's breaches in the wall where the enemy comes through. So the enemy now was invading and it was so bad that Joel described them like locusts. He said, God sent his locusts and they're devouring. And he says, even the worms, that they're, they're eating away everything. But then Joel goes to chapter two. And he basically says, but call a solemn assembly. Gather everybody together and humble yourselves and pray and fast and ask God's forgiveness. Deeply repent before the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will relent and he will, he will bring a blessing. And he goes on to say this, if you will do this, he said, the Lord, hear what I'm saying, the Lord will drive away that army. And he will release again the former and the latter rains. And he will restore the grain, new wine, and the oil. He will restore back the years the locusts have eaten. And he says, and he'll pour out his spirit. 
Of course, that's a famous passage Peter quoted. In the last days, I'll part my spirit. But that came because they repented. They got right with God and God delivered them. And then he poured out his spirit and brought restoration. All the years. How many would love for the Lord to restore all the years the locusts have eaten? Whatever that is, God restore everything. He is the God of restoration. And then Isaiah 58, I'm kind of putting it all together. I just jotted down some things here. But when you look at these promises, man, you can't help but just have a burning desire. I need to humble myself in prayer and fasting and repentance and make sure that I'm giving and that I want, I want these blessings in my life. These things, these blessings are so powerful. It, any sincere Christian would think, man, I really want this in my life. Listen to Isaiah 58. He said, if you will pray and fast, he said this. He said, you will call upon me and I will answer you. Think about that for a minute. God is the God of answering prayers, but it adds some kind of a power to it when we humble ourselves with fasting. See, David Hogan said this one time. It always stuck with me. He said, if I can humble my soul in prayer, and humble my body in fasting, there's nothing that God's word promises me that he won't do for me. Humility. And Isaiah 58 goes on to say this, you'll cry out to me and I'll say, here I am. You know what that is? His nearness. How many want God's nearness? I don't want God to feel like he's far off. The Bible says that he knows the proud afar off, but he's near the humble. So there's a nearness. Answer prayers, nearness. He goes on to say this, I will make you like a well-watered garden whose springs don't fail and strengthen your frame. A well-watered garden, you know what that is? Perpetual revival. That your life is like an oasis of refreshing and revival. You know what the counterpart scripture there is? Like a tree planted by the waters that perpetually bear fruit. Leaves don't wither. Whatever you do prospers. How many want to live in perpetual revival? Then he goes on to say this. Your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing quickly appear. He specifically talks about light breaking forth. And healing. The light is a healing virtue. You remember when the woman grabbed the corner of Jesus' tallit and healing virtue shot through her? Jesus didn't even pray for that woman. Y'all understand that, right? He, he seemed like he was surprised by it. Who just touched me? And, and the people there, the disciples were like, you're just kidding, right? I mean, everybody's... He said, well, no, I mean, there was somebody that really... He's looking around. There's that woman down there probably thinking, did I do something wrong? And he said, woman, you're healed. But light will break forth. And that's, you know what the counter scripture to that is? The counterpart is uh, he will arise with healing in his wings. You know what that is in Hebrew? Because I, I read this. The healing in his wings translates um, healing rays. Look it up in the Hebrew. A shining healing rays will shine upon you 
And so it says, if you'll humble yourself in prayer and fasting and giving and consecrate your life before him, he says, if you'll do the fast I've chosen, I, my light will break forth in your life and my healing will appear and your righteousness will go before you and the glory will be your rear guard. And then he goes on to say something that blew my mind when I studied this out. And he goes on to say this, if I could paraphrase it. Not only will I restore the years the locusts have eaten in your life, but I'm going to use you to be among those that through your life will restore the ancient ruins that Satan has torn down. You're going to be among those that help relay foundations, raise up those ancient ruins, repair the breach. Remember, when sin comes in, the breaches open up. And the devil starts getting in. I'm going to use you to help drive hell back out and, and repair the walls like Nehemiah again. Wow. You know what that is? It, it's really not as complicated as it sounds. What he's saying there is, I will pour out my spirit in your life and I will restore to you everything the devil's stolen. Then I'm going to use you to be among those that see revival that affects your region. That's what he's saying there. And I'm going to use you to be among those that uh, the devil came through your city, your region, your nation, and he tore down, he destroyed, he even, he even damaged foundations. But because you've sought me in prayer and fasting, you're going to be among those that rebuild those ancient ruins again. So the call here is a call to repentance and holiness. And I, I say this as I'm closing out here because this really isn't a very long sermon, but it is a sermon that's very dear to my heart because I'm saying this the right way. I'm saying this with love, humility, but kind of a deep burden in me because I remember the revivals of the 90s. I was kind of smack dab in the middle of everything going on. If I could get there, I was going to get there. I was at all the meetings I could go to at Brownsville, and anytime somebody anointed came to town, I mean, I went to all the Rodney meetings, and when Toronto came or Argentine Revival came here, I went. I, if, if there was somebody being used powerfully of God, I would drive there. I remember going, we went to Benny Hinn meetings back then, everything else, and I got prayer. God was radically touching my life. I mean, it was deep. And I remember seeing so many people come and so many people hungry. People would line up, not just at Brownsville. People would line up and come. They would get there early. People were hungry. People were on fire for God. And, and the altar calls back then for repentance were being answered. I mean, people were really repenting, getting right with God. And it, it was an awesome thing. And then revival starts waning. And all of a sudden, I start noticing that people quit lining up people quit being hungry. I started noticing that, that people started backsliding. I noticed people I knew that their godly convictions, they used to have convictions in certain areas were waning now and they were doing things they would have never done back in the days of revival. They started getting out of church or going somewhere where God doesn't move at all and People begin to, you know what it's, just putting it real simply, people begin to backslide. And boy, that grieved me. 
And of course, the devil came in and began to attack and try to stomp out any trace of revival, and a lot of things were happening, and a lot of spiritual warfare. But people began to backslide. People's love grew cold, bottom line. And it really deeply grieved me, still does. As you know, I was saying in this last conference we did, there's people, I love them, and they may see this, and they might get mad at me, they may not, but it's true. They had no excuse for not coming and receiving, except that they're spiritually backslid and dead. They're in driving distance. It's free to come. All they had to do was come here and receive, but they didn't want to come. Maybe because there's sin in their life and they, didn't, they, they don't want to come. They feel uncomfortable that they're going to be confronted by the Holy Spirit. So I don't know. But they're backslid because there was a time, I know these people, there was a time during the 90s that they would have saved up money and took off work and drove out of state to go to a move of God. Something's happened to them where they won't even drive 15 minutes down the road to something that's free. Are you hearing my heart tonight? That's sad. God, please don't let that happen to me. What happens to people? Do they get hurt? Does life beat them up? I've been there. Do, do they, does the seductiveness of sin creep in? I don't know. And it probably is different things for different people. But here's the question I have for those that are listening tonight. Are you backslidden? Are you as close to the Lord right now as you've ever been in your life? Or is there a time in your life you can look back and say, well, I was closer to the Lord back then? That's scary, but it can happen. Has things happened? Have you been through warfare? Have you been beat up in life? Have you just simply allowed sin in? Have you been hurt and you're dealing with unforgiveness? I've been there too. But we got to get to a point to where we just humble ourselves. I'm going to tell you, one of the most humble things that you can do, and believe me, it's not easy, is when people are being mean and abusive and hateful, you have to humble yourself to the dirt and respond in love. That's hard sometimes. And it goes against your natural inclination to do it. My wife knows what I'm talking about. I'm, ta I'm talking about me. She knows I'm talking about some situations by the grace and mercy of God, I was able to respond in love to some real hate and bitterness and evil. But that's one of the most humble, and it's hard because your flesh is like, oh, man. And if you let that happen, you remember Brother Ralph here said, my flesh almost rose up, and I beat him up myself. I've felt that before. I really have. But then the Holy Spirit comes in. I saw a meme on Facebook made me laugh of this lizard holding a, a frog's mouth shut. I guess that really happened. Didn't look Photoshop. But anyway, the lizard's holding a frog's mouth shut, and it said above the lizard, Holy Spirit, and then, and then the person said, that's me. <laughs> the frog is me. The Holy Spirit, hold my mouth shut. And that's, you know, God sometimes has to help us. So the question is, though, are you as close to the Lord as you've ever been? If not, let's really deeply repent and get things right with God. Because sometimes, I mean, it, it can be our fault, okay, I understand that, but other times we've just been through maybe horrible betrayals, beat up by life, major spiritual warfare, a season of just you're just thankful to be alive on the other side of it, and then you come out of that and you're spiritually kind of dead and dry. I think that God understands that. 
but let's give it to him and let's come back to the Lord and say, Lord, set me ablaze again. Let me burn for you again. Don't leave me in this dead, dry place. And God will. It reminds me of Peter when he preached on the day of Pentecost. And they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. There's 3,000 of them. They said, well, brothers, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and turn to the Lord. It says here in this translation, be converted. But it trans- in the Greek, it means turn to God. He's saying, repent and turn back to God. That your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We've overcomplicated it. It's really not that hard. If we will humble ourselves and really deeply repent before him and get everything right, he says times of refreshing from the Lord will come again. Revival will come. God's waiting on us. He has never been unfaithful to his end of the blood covenant. We're the ones that keep backsliding, allowing things in our lives to get in between us and him, things that get us off course. And he's saying, if you'll just come back to me. And let me say too, iniquity, I've preached a lot on iniquity. Sin is, is, is unintentional. We all sin. Transgression is rebellion. It means you knew it was wrong and you premeditated and did it anyway. But iniquity is, means bent or crooked within. So it's a bentness, a crookedness within a person that keeps... They keep feeling compulsive to do things they shouldn't do. They feel like they're in bondage to it. They repent. They turn from it. They ask God's forgiveness, and they do good for a little while, yet just to keep ending up falling back into it again. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity. If we'll repent of our iniquity and give it to him and humble ourselves in prayer and fasting, you watch as God won't reach down into you and pull all that crooked junk out of you. And as he pulls that junk out of you, you're going to be so free that you're no longer going to keep struggling with that stuff. You're not going to keep going back to it anymore because he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And what does John say about Jesus, the Lamb of God who what takes away the sin? He'll reach in you and pull that junk out of you where you don't struggle with it anymore, okay? So let's turn to him and ask him to get down in there and do a deep work in all of us, okay? So I want us just to spend a few moments in prayer. And here's what I want to do. We're just going to put on some worship. But I want us to do this. I want us to spend some time in prayer before the Lord. And then I'm going to pray for those that want prayer. But I want us to take some time and ask the Lord this question. Lord, am I as close to you and on, as on fire for you as I've ever been in my life? Or have I backslid something? Have I allowed some things in my life that isn't good for me? Some wrong relationships or some things in my life that I should not have, but it's, it's there, I've allowed it, forgive me. And let's do some soul searching. And then after we pray through there, begin to pray for your loved ones, etc., and ask God to pour out his spirit, like Cornelius, that you and your household. Remember what Peter told that guy, or Paul? He told that jailer, he said, that earthquake, they were praising God and the earthquake came and they were liberated from prison. And the jailer was going to kill himself and Paul said, don't do it, we're here. And he says to the jailer, he says, that you and your household may be saved. 
listen, they got saved, but the Lord's interested not just you, but your whole family's salvation. He's very interested in it. And I think, I don't know why I'm sharing this, but I feel this is for somebody. You remember, in, I think it's Second uh, Corinthians 7, might be First Corinthians 7. The older I get, the more challenging these little things like this are, but that's okay. But it's, it's in there, and it says this. It says that if, if, for example, a woman is married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever is willing to remain with her, he says you need to stay with him because your salvation has caused him to be sanctified and your children sanctified. Did you hear that? What that means is, in actual terms, scripturally, would be that they are holy unto God, meaning that they're, they're your kids, and because they're yours, God has set them apart as holy, and God's going to move in their life. So God's interested in your family, salvation, your children, grandchildren, etc., and not just their salvation, but that God, like Cornelius, would pour out his spirit. So... I want us to do this for a moment, if uh, if we can. Can you just play the keyboard? Actually, just turn it down some and play something. Maybe Lord have mercy, and let's let's spend some time here, guys, and let's really pray, and ask the Lord. Please help me with this, Lord. Is there anything in my life where it used to be different than it is now? I've allowed some things to creep in. I've backslidden some. Maybe my convictions have waned. Anything in me, forgive me. I repent. I turn cleanse me in Jesus name wash me and just go to a screen those that are online just spend some time in prayer and let's seek the